This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and FPC Golfport on YouTube. You know, across the course of history, people have tended to worship two types of gods. Now, the first type of god, the first type is the type that you got to go flag down. It's a type of God that exists somewhere out there in the ether, somewhere out there in the cosmos, and you, as a small and finite and tiny creature, need to do something big in order to get his attention. That's one type of God, and it was a popular God amongst people of antiquity. If you think about the Greeks, they had Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and the rest, and those guys hung out on Mount Olympus, or somewhere far removed from man. Now, in order to solicit some help or some aid from these guys, you, way down here, needed to do something grand. You needed to either be a person of some repute, you needed to be strong and powerful enough to gain their attention, or to act in such a way that they couldn't help but notice and come to your aid. But if you were just some average, everyday schmo, you're just some average, everyday nobody, then the Greek gods, they had no time for you. No desire, no inclination to come down from their high and heavenly perch to lift a finger to do anything in your life. In fact, those gods, if you look at the gods of the Canaanites, you look at the more recent gods of Aztecs and the like, these gods, A, they're dreadful, and B, they really went to some length to keep man at arm's length. With that said, how could you gain their attention if you really wanted to? Assuming that you desire to gain the attention of one of these phantom deities, how would you go about it? Well, across the centuries, people have tried everything. People would climb tall mountains. They assumed if you could just get to a high enough peak, he might be able to hear you. You know, altitude was part of the problem. So people would do that. Others, they'd do really odd, crazy stuff. They'd not only build idols of stone and granite and wood and marble, whatever they had around, but then they'd bow down to the very things that they had made with their own hands, which is kind of silly and stupid. Then they would engage in even more weird and wild stuff to try to get divine favor. They'd do the rain dances. They'd also do something as creepy as sacrifice their own children. They did all manner of things, thinking that if they just did enough, or they did something wild enough, or big enough, or bold enough, that then, maybe then, the gods would smile upon them and give them divine favor. Now, between you and me, did that work out for them? Well, not so much. In 1 Kings 18, you get an example of this. 1 Kings 18, you have this great battle between Elijah and then all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Now, we've talked about this in the past, so I'll skip to the highlights. Both Elijah and then the seven, 800 prophets of Baal and Asher, they're both praying that their God would light the sacrifice under their altar. So you got one guy versus all these hundreds, and the objective is the same, that whoever's God is God would light a sacrifice. Seems pretty straightforward. Well, the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they got together and they did their thing. And they dressed up and they started dancing and then they started singing. And the idea was that if they danced enough and sang enough, maybe they sang in the right tune or the right lyrics or what have you, that their God would respond. And of course, as the hours went by, nothing happened. And so they tried louder. Still nothing happened. So what do they do next? Well, they think, well, maybe we really got to do something crazy here. I mean, if the gods are going to light the sacrifice, which seems like a pretty mundane, easy thing to do, you know, spark a flame. If we're going to get God to do that, and he's not responding to the singing and the dancing, no bailar, no cantar, then what do we need to do? Well, what they did was this. They started to take out knives, and they would cut themselves, thinking that if only we're just shedding blood, that'll demonstrate the sincerity of our request, and then, maybe then, he'll do something. Their gods would respond. Now, do you know what the answer was from the collective cosmos? 
It was a, a giant yawn. Nothing happened. Nothing took place. And you remember Elijah, he says to the guys, he goes, come on, try this again. Try it a little louder. Do a little bit more. Dance you know, in wider patterns. Sing more. Bleed more. Whatever. He says, maybe your God is sleepy. Maybe your God's on the Xbox. Maybe your God's on hiatus. He's doing something, and you just haven't done enough to attract him to you. Well, of course, they did it all day long, and nothing happened. Elijah, meanwhile, stands up from under the tree, gets forward, says the equivalent of first words out of his mouth. And God responds with fire from heaven, so bold, so impressive, so amazing. It not only burnt up the sacrifice, but it obliterated it. The scripture says that even the dust was eviscerated by this fiery blast. You see, there are two types of gods, the real one and the many fake alternatives. But one of the ways to determine whose God is who is whether your God keeps you at arm's length or whether your God seeks you out whether God seeks out his people. And that's the distinctive in Christianity. In Christianity, our God is not some distant, aloof thing. We've got to wave down, flag down, dance around enough to get his attention. That's not what we have. Instead, we have something called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Not God there, not God there, not God a satellite around us, God with us. Christianity is based on this idea that God wants to be with us. And he proved it by being born in a manger, living and breathing amongst his own people, and then ultimately dying for them. God wants to be among his people, and he wants us to be with him, which is what this is all about. The salvation and redemption of mankind that we can ultimately dwell on high. That's the sort of God you want, isn't it? Not a God that keeps you at arm's length, not a God that you've got to do all sorts of crazy hijinks to wave down, but rather a God who enters into your pain. A God who enters into the crucible of your difficulty. That's what you want. That's also what we see in today's passage. In today's passage in Matthew 9, you have this gathering of sinners. This is like the Star Wars cantina scene. Villainous hive of scum and the like gathered together. Sinners, tax collectors, all manner of those who are doing all manner of things wrong, sat at a table to eat. And yet, in spite of all the conventional wisdom of the age... So did Jesus. Jesus Christ sat down amongst the last people you would ever think he would sit down. And as we're going to see in today's passage, that blew the minds of the religious elite who watched him do it. All right, let's look at verse 9, then we'll work our way through the balance. Verse 9. So as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. All right, as this morning's text opens, Jesus is in the region of an area that we know as Capernaum. He had just gotten done healing a paralytic, seeking out someone who could not seek him out. He'd gone and healed the paralytic, and he had forgiven that paralytic of his sins. Now, those events were recorded in verses 1 through 8. But here in verse 9, speaking of sinners, verse 9, Jesus encounters one of the most notorious sinners in the whole region. Specifically, he encounters this man, Matthew, who is sitting at the tax office. See, tax offices were set up at all the major crossroads in the region. The idea was that for any commercial transport that might be going through or traveling in state, out of state, you know, into the nation, out of the nation, that taxes could be collected. So they were set up on the commercial routes, and if you were driving along in your horse, in your buggy, your oxen, whatever you had, you're going through this area, the one thing that you least wanted to see was the tax office. 
It's kind of like when you're going to Florida and you hit the toll booths. You're like, oh, dear heavens, this is not where I want to be. Well, this is like a thousand times worse because you're going to the tax man just by virtue of passing on the major road. As we said earlier, the tax office was an extension of Rome, extension of the Roman government. The tax office was set up so that taxes could be taken out of the pockets of the people and sent to the oppressor, and that was Rome. And so if you were a Jewish tax collector, as we mentioned earlier, if you were a Jewish tax collector as Matthew was, then in reality and perception, both, you were an enemy, or at least you were a servant of the enemy. If a Jewish woman was to bring home a man to introduce to the parents, they would rather him be the biggest bum or scoundrel in the nation rather than to be tax man, because the tax man was traitorous. Under uh, the Roman system of government, tax collectors, they were expected to reap a certain amount of profit, a certain amount from plying their trade, all sorts of taxation. So Rome told Matthew and others, they said, all right, you've got to hit this quota you got to get this amount. Well, here's the thing. Rome allowed the Jewish tax collectors, if they hit their quota, to keep anything above their quota. So if you were Matthew, you withdrew taxes to send to Rome, but the way you really made your payday was to extract even more that was going on to Rome that you could therefore keep. And because of this, the tax collector was basically a shakedown artist, not just a trader but a shakedown artist filling their own pockets. They had turned on their nation, turned on their own, turned on the people, and they were getting rich in the process. And that's why it blew everyone's minds that Jesus would sit down with the likes of this. Virtually every other type of sin you could commit was considered in this context to be less hyenas than this. So that's the cultural context. And because that's the cultural context, First nine could have read differently. It could have said this. It could have said, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax office. So Jesus cursed him, kicked dust in his tent, and went on down the road. If that's what Jesus had done, it would have been more understandable in the eyes of everyone who was watching, and it would have curried greater favor with the Pharisees. But that's not what happened. Instead, Jesus comes across the tax office. He looks at the one sitting there. His name is Matthew. Instead of cursing him and kicking dust into his booth, he says, follow me. Come, follow me. Now, I'll make two quick observations before we move on to our next verses. The first observation is this, that when you see Jesus look at the man who was the most hated, villainous man in the region at this time and say, you, I want you, you know what that suggests to me? It suggests that there's no one beyond grace. There's no one that's outside of God's grace. There's no one no matter what they dress like, look like, what music they listen to, life choices, what have you. There's no one that is outside the reach of God's saving arms. Matthew was a tax collector. Saul was a persecutor of the church. And yet God not only chose these guys, not only volitionally chose them and told them to follow me, but then in the face of all expectation, he used these guys to be absolute linchpins on which his kingdom is built. He was the least likely guys to advance his kingdom purposes. It suggests to me that there's no one so far gone that God cannot call them back to himself. Don't ever think that. 
Don't ever look at someone go by and think that they're somehow on the outside of God's grace because they aren't. Secondly, I want you to notice that Matthew, his response is not to argue with Jesus or to discuss. He just drops what he's doing and follows him. You know, this man was politically, socially, religiously unacceptable. He wasn't even allowed in the synagogue. Just completely, politically, socially, religiously unacceptable. No one would have wanted to hang out with this guy. And yet, Jesus did. Follow me. Jesus invites, and that's exactly what Matthew does. Okay, let's look at verses 10 and 11. Verse 10. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold... Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with them. Jesus sits at the table, and then Scripture wants to draw our eyes to this, because it uses that word behold. And when it says behold, it's like open your eyes as wide as possible, because this is really significant. Jesus sits at the table, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? All right, when I said a few moments ago that no one wanted to hang out with Matthew, I probably should have qualified that and said this instead. No one reputable wanted to hang out with Matthew. There was all manner of people. I mean, he had money, right? So there's all manner of people. If he threw a feast, people were going to come. However, they were not the reputable people of society. This was not those that you would be inclined to sit down with yourself based on the things that they had done. So these were irreputable people. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners. Sinners in the plural, the connotation here is that these are the worst of the worst. If one tax collector is bad, imagine a whole lot of them. Like I said, it reminds me of that Star Wars cantina scene. This is an outright den of iniquity that has gathered at this table. And yet, right there in the middle of it is Jesus. You know, when foreign dignitaries come to visit our nation, where do they go? If you have rulers and kings and queens and so forth from other nations, and they come to America to visit, where do they go? Well, they don't usually start at Skid Row. They usually don't go to those places that are renowned for being places where there's heartache and sin and difficulty and violence and the like. Rather, they go to meet with the political elite and celebrities and so forth. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus didn't come to go rub elbows with the high and mighty. Rather, he went to seek out those who are not just broken and hurting, but those who were at the very fringe of society itself. Here he is, verse 11, seated at the last table you would ever have expected. And in that context, this was unheard of. You see, sharing a meal in this cultural context, it suggested intimacy. You sat down with the people that were generally speaking close to you, and you gave the people of special importance the best seats. There was a lot of social cues being picked up on based on who you ate with and where you ate and the like. There was a lot of social cues here. In this context, based on who's eating, this action that Jesus took was just, was just unheard of. And so in verse 11, the Pharisees, they gather the disciples, and they want to know just one thing. Why? Why? People knew the tales that this guy's doing miracles. That had reached the ears of just about everybody. And yet, despite the fact he was clearly a knowledgeable, wise, miraculous individual, they could not process, it did not compute why he would sit down with them. And so they take the disciples together and they say, why? Why is your teacher? Why is your leader? Why is your rabbi? Why is he seated with sinners and tax collectors? Doesn't he know who these people are? 
does not he know who these people are? You know, to the Pharisees, God wasn't to be approached. Spirituality wasn't to be approached by the dirty and sinful until such time as they were no longer dirty and sinful. To them, dirty sinners were to be avoided. If someone had a physical illness, you avoided them. If someone had a spiritual illness, you avoided them. Their idea was that until you got right with God, you were to be kept at arm's length. Until you got with the program and started being as pious as they were, then you could not dwell in their company. In the 1970s, there was a song, a lyric I can paraphrase, that said this, said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. That was the message. You could have tattooed that on the forehead of the Pharisees. Long-haired, freaky people need not apply. If you're on the marginalized, if you're a sinner, if you're broken and hurting and unclean or what have you, you just stay away until such time as you've gotten right with God, then maybe then you can come dwell in our midst. And to them, getting right with God was nothing in the heart. It was all about rule-keeping. Until you start doing all the things that we're doing, then you're not fit to grace our table. Dear heavens, this is the exact opposite of what the gospel is all about. This is the exact opposite of what grace is. You know, keeping people at arm's length until they get right with God, that's not the call. Jesus sought out those who were broken. He sought out those who were hurting. And let me tell you this. He sought them out in places that weren't necessarily in the confines of the four walls of the church. Even in 21st century evangelical Christianity, we have this mindset that we'll put out a website, we'll put out a banner, we'll put out signs, and we'll expect people to come to us. And when they do, that's wonderful and that's good. And yet there's a lot of people hurting the communities around us that require someone, someone to go to them. Someone to go to them. To reach into their lives, to share a meal with them, to introduce them to the gospel, introduce them to Jesus. The Pharisees, this was not their approach. They expected people to get right first, and that is the antithesis of everything that grace is all about. All right, so let's see. The Pharisees have asked this question in verse 11. They've said, why is he doing this? Let's see Jesus' answer in verse 12. So Jesus heard that. He had ears that caught everything. When he heard that, he said to them, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So in verse 11, the Pharisees say, hey, hey. What's this guy doing hanging out with the sinners? You know, if you were to ask, what kind of building does a doctor work in? What would you say? Hospital, all right, hospital. If you're a doctor, you don't set up shop in the library. Why? Because that's usually not where the sick people are. You go to those places, the circumstances, the situations where those who are hurting are. If you're a doctor, the same is true if you are the great physician and you've come to deal with sin and death. You go to where the sinners are. And that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, look, those who are well have no need of a physician, right? I mean, that's just common sense. He's just using a logical argument saying those who are well don't need the doctor. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Who does? Those who are sick. Sick people need a doctor. You're looking at the sinners and telling them that they've got to get right first. I'm telling you that's not the way this works. I have come to seek and to save. And if you were to look at Matthew chapters 8 and 9, you'll notice he does this everywhere. He didn't go and sit on the top of Mount Hermon and wait for everyone to come to them. Rather, he went out into the communities. He went out into these places. He went from city to city, hamlet to hamlet, village to village. And he healed everyone who came to them. How about the Pharisees would have agreed when Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a doctor? I bet they would have agreed with that. But, but, what would have shocked them is that in making this statement, 
Jesus was simultaneously saying that he himself was a physician, a physician of souls, and the suggestion was that they should have been too. The Pharisees, it goes without saying, were not in the healing business. They had no time for the sick or the sinful. With that said, it was, of course, just an act. They were not necessarily pious. They might have looked it, but inside they were filled with rotten decay. That's why Jesus made that great famous statement where he looks at the Pharisees and says, Hey, you look pretty clean on the outside. Inside, you're just bones. He said, You're like a whitewashed tomb. Looks great if you're standing in the field taking a look at the gravestone. But underneath, what's there? Decay. Rot. He says, That's who you are. He says to them, You would never do hospital visitation, would you? It would be beneath you, O Pharisee, to go to those who are hurting, to seek out those who are dying, the sick or the sinful. Meanwhile, Jesus here marched into the equivalent of the spiritual ER. He marched into the spiritual equivalent of the ER and had dinner. And that just, again, it boggled the minds. Isn't that the sort of God you want? Dear heavens, at one point... If not presently, at one point, you were lost ball in the high weeds. At one point, you were outside of the kingdom. At one point, you were at enmity with the king and his throne and the cross. At one point, you were without hope in this world. And yet, of his own volition, God determined to save you by sending his son, by sending his spirit, by sending his word, by giving you every grace to do that which you otherwise would not do. How desperately wicked, how desperately cruel, It is to try to withhold that sort of grace from others. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you're wrong. This is not the way that this works. Let's look at verse 13 as he redresses their approach. Verse 13, go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, in verse 11, the Pharisees had implied that Jesus was doing something wrong. They didn't just imply it, they overtly said it. What's he doing? This is wrong. This is not the way that this works. In their mind, God wanted religious people to focus on law-keeping, to sit in the synagogues, to make the loud prayers, to offer the sacrifices. That sort of piety trumped everything else. Well, as we've said, they missed the boat. And all their studies, and they had read I mean, it's not like they'd never encountered the Old Testament scriptures. They'd read these things. They just missed the boat. And so in verse 13, that's what Jesus tells them. He says, look, just go. Go and study up on this. You need some remedial training. Go and learn what this means. It's a verse you're familiar with. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. These words come from the Old Testament prophet of Hosea, Hosea 6, 6, I believe. Now, again, had the Pharisees ever read Hosea? Well, yes, yes, absolutely. They'd encountered the words, but they'd never applied them. That's so rough when that happens. Even in our present age, we encounter the words of Scripture, but then we kind of gloss past the ones we don't like or don't want to apply in order to embrace those things that tend to validate us and crush our enemies. We tend to exalt those parts of Scripture that we like, and the rest of it, well, you know, I didn't get around to that. Well, Jesus says, get around to it. Go back, remedial training, 101, Hosea 6. Learn what this means. I desire mercy. You are so hard-hearted. You are so cruel to hurting broken people. You've got it all backwards. You think that you're going to pray loud enough, wear the finery clothes, to offer the various sacrifices, and that's going to appease your father? No. 
Go back. Learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not to say there wasn't a place for sacrifice. The point is this. It was secondary in the life and heart and motivations of a faithful individual to mercy, which is exactly what they were withholding. Pharisees, they could quote scripture to support their own views. They could hold court on God's word. They did that a lot. Didn't mean they got it. Didn't mean they understood it. And so Jesus says they need to go back and study. Doing religious things with bad motivations means nothing. The Pharisees, they could have sacrificed sheep and goats all day long, up to the rafters, up to the heavens. They could have done that. But if their heart was still in this sad estate, it would not have mattered. You doubt that? Think about Cain. Cain sacrificed too. Didn't seem to get him anywhere. The same is true of this. Whatever they were doing in their religious walk, they thought it was rising up to God like a sweet smell. Instead, it was angering him. And that's because in their attempts to keep the law, they had forgotten the law. The law says this, love God, love your neighbor. At least half thereof, they had zero interest in doing. And so Jesus says, go back and study. Let's look at the second part of verse 13. I believe this is the final part of our text. It says, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So the verse started off saying, look guys, go back and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous, healthy, well people, but rather sinners to repentance. And then it says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Have you ever had someone ask you a question and then tell you, don't worry, there's no wrong answers? I'm going to ask you a question and there is a wrong answer. Here's the question. If Jesus had come to earth and his objective had been only this, to go and find only the righteous people, righteous of their own estate, righteous of their own volition, find them and usher them into his heavenly kingdom, then here's the question. How many people would be in heaven now? Zero. A goose egg. If Jesus had come down and did what the Pharisees were basically suggesting, seek out only the righteous, only those who are worthy of him, then heaven would be empty except for him. And that's what he says here. I didn't come to call the righteous. Dear heavens, if I did that, no one's going to join me. I didn't come to call the righteous because there aren't any. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's none who are righteous, no, not one. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. In Jesus' eyes, it's very possible that the Pharisees were the chief of sinners in that equation. Jesus sought out those who were in need. And it's sad that the Pharisees did not recognize their own need. You and I, the people in the world around us, we're all in the same boat. The people that you look at down on the beach or at Walmart or what have you and say they're outside of acceptable norms of behavior and practice, you may be right. You may be right. And that does not mean that they're outside the range of God's saving grace. This appropriate approach to have in someone that you encounter who seems as lost as lost can be is to think this. There but for the grace of God go I. If God hadn't done a saving work in my heart, and then continue to sanctify me from who I once was, functionally, I'd be no different than this individual. So I'll ask you this final question this morning. Are there undesirable people in your life? Are there undesirable people in your walk, those who you hold yourself above? Are there undesirable people that you think God should just be dealing with, perhaps even bringing his wrath upon? Well, again, I would encourage you to remember, you were once like they. 
All we have gone astray. All we like sinners have turned astray, and every last one has turned to his own way. And yet, and yet, the Lord has laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. From those in this room, to Saul of Tarsus, to those who are broken and hurting in estates that we wouldn't want to set foot in today, the Lord is still in the saving business, and he still uses ambassadors like you and I. And when we encounter these folks, we should encounter them with the same message that Jesus did, one of grace. And so if you find yourself looking down your nose at someone else, stop. Instead, remember that God is in the saving business and he may be using you in that encounter to be the very means, the human instrumentation by which people hear about Jesus for the first time. Extend grace to others, just as God has extended it to you. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.